This episode is brought to you by Gin & Co, author website design specialists. If you want a beautiful and functional website to promote your books and brand, reach out to Gin today. His work includes tailored, expertly designed, professional author websites. I finally have a website I'm proud to share. And we've got a special offer for Words and Nerds listeners. Reach out today and get a free domain name and website hosting for the first year. You can get their website essentials package, includes domain name, website hosting, backup and security, free for the first year with any website purchase. This is valued at $330 a year. Choose a website designed to bring your author brand to life. You can find more details about this special offer at ginand.co forward slash words and nerds. Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm Danny V, podcast host and children's author. I also do some work in publishing in acquisitions and publicity. As we hurdle towards 1 million plays, we'll continue to provide you with conversational, vulnerable, honest and fun chats with your favorite authors across all genres. Check out our takeover episodes, usually released on a Friday, and our spin-offs released during the month. Thank you for being here, being part of the journey, and supporting Aussie creatives. Before we get started, I just wanted to alert you to a trigger warning that may be upsetting to some people. Um, We talk about infanticide and some of the things that women were forced to do back in the 1890s because of a lack of support. And I just wanted to shout out that little trigger warning there so you can take care when listening. Welcome to the Words Nerds podcast, where we bring literary goodness straight to your ears. Today, I welcome Tanya Blanchard, who writes historical fiction inspired by the true stories and the rich cultural heritage of her family's history. Her best-selling acclaimed stories of love, loss and hope and the challenges facing women in defining moments in modern history span world wars and pivotal moments in time during great social and political upheaval. Her books include The Girl from Munich, Suitcase of Dreams and Letters from Berlin. And today we're going to talk about A Woman of Courage. Welcome to the podcast, Tanya. Thanks so much, Danny, for having me. Very excited to be talking about A Woman of Courage. (laughs) And I'm very excited to be talking to you about it. I always think these books are really important, particularly those, you know, forgotten women of history, which, you know, you do very well. And so does Kate Forsyth and Jackie French. So I I love these type of books. I think they're so important um, for readers and to bring them out. But first, before we get into all of that, can you hit me with an elevator pitch about A Woman of Courage? Yeah, sure. Um, A Woman of Courage is set in the 1890s, so the late Victorian period in northern England. Um, The story is about Hannah. She's a young teacher in a small rural village um, who fights passionately for women's suffrage while confronting challenges in her own community. And she discovers what happens when power is threatened by women speaking up. And funnily enough, even though that was set in 1890, it still sounds very relevant today oh yeah it really is the more i've delved into the writing of the story and the research i really discovered that um there's a lot of parallels Mm. between back then and now it's interesting there was so much time has passed and yes so much progress has been made but there's still so much progress to be made isn't that interesting so we'll talk about that shortly i'll save that for a little bit later (laughs) but topic i'm very passionate about But let's talk about Hannah. I mean, it's really important to have this compelling character with all these complexities, you know, which you obviously managed to do and dreams of a future where women have the right to vote, which seems like such a basic thing to be able to do. So tell me, why was this story important for you to write? 
Well, all of my stories are based on family stories and my previous stories were based on my family stories. But this time I turned to my husband's family stories and I heard a story um, that his father actually told me about this pub that the Blanchards owned and ran in Durham in northern England at the turn of the 20th century. Um, he heard the story from his grandfather, who was the son of, of this family. And I wanted to know what it might have been like for the publican's wife. What, her name was Eleanor. Um, what life did she have living in this pub? Um, so that's basically where the story started. Um, and, and then I discovered that um, Eleanor, in fact, was a teacher. And then I wanted to know how did she go from being a teacher to being involved in running of a pub and what kind of life might she have had? You must have very interesting families if you were, you know, able to base all these books upon your families. <laughs> oh, I think I just find just that, that kernel of a story. Mm. I just find some fascinating um, people looking through the family tree and I look at the women and go, you're really interesting. I want to know more about you. And Eleanor, because she was a teacher, how did she go from being a teacher to a publican? Um, so, you know, I, I guess that that's where the story really starts for me. It's with the, the family members and the character that they would be and then all the what-ifs and how did that happen. And then the story develops from there as I do the research. Mm, that's really interesting. And how difficult is it to research a woman like that? Because, you know, there's not a lot in history about women like that. So you found out she was a teacher and, you know, ran the pub. So how do you actually do that research when there's not a whole lot around? Well, that, that's so true. Um, I guess a lot of it um, I, I could pick up bits and pieces from her, her story just from um, – like uh, ancestry, the birth, deaths and marriages and uh, census documents. That gave me, I guess, the the main points, the scaffolding, I suppose, to build her character and what she might have been. And then it's the imagination. You know, what what if? Um, what was her life like um, at that time? And then doing a bit of research, I mean, there were women like the wonderful Millicent Fawcett, Mill sorry, try again, Millicent Fawcett, um, who was really important in the women's suffrage movement at the time. And so I, I based some of her uh, character, I guess, on Hannah as well. Uh, and there were there was a bit of uh, information around uh, about the women's suffrage movement and the women that were involved at the time, who were actually, a lot of them were teachers to start with. They looked at um, improving rights for, for women um, through the Education Act, through um, uh, women's um, property, um, especially when they were married um, and that, that sort of thing. So I was actually able to get quite a bit of information, which is which is quite amazing um, from those women in history. Mm, that's really interesting. And it's interesting when you say you started with, you know, this kind of census data, because I'm thinking if someone had census data, you know, on you or I, it tells a very different story to, you know, the life that you're actually living. So I find that really interesting that that's where you started and so I guess the question is, and this is probably almost impossible to answer, but where do you, where's the line between history and fiction and reality and then you build this world? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it is very blurred, absolutely. For me, it's always starts with the bare bones of what I know about that historical, about the uh, ancestor really, um, and they, I guess they are a historical person in some, some ways. So I start with that and then I look through the research about what their life might have been like 
um, where they lived, what they might have thought, um, and find out that sort of historical background as well. And then I just piece it together, and that's just with um, imagination and fiction. And I guess you've got to kind of put yourself into their shoes and imagine what you might have felt like in that situation. Or, uh, And I guess that's the beauty of fiction, isn't it? You can imagine how people might react or um, what they might do or why they might think a particular way with the circumstances that are behind them, and that's historical events and the way they live, all of that meshes together to to build this world. Yeah, it's, I find that so fascinating about historical fiction, and I find for me that's the best way to learn history. You know, when I was at school I found history so dry and so yep. boring and it was all this textbook stuff, and I really didn't get an appreciation of how interesting history was until I started reading books about it. So, you know, because yeah. within that, even though the characters may be fictionalised or embellished, within most historical fiction you do have those, you know, historical events and social events in there that are quite accurate. So is that what you found when you were writing this? Yeah, absolutely right. And and for me that was the big thing that I wanted to bring these characters to life. So their, their ancestors and family members, I wanted to bring their lives yeah. back into, you know, into this time so that people could see what it was like for them, how they might have lived, that they come to life, they're flesh and blood, they're ordinary people who often are going through quite extraordinary circumstances or having to live with um, really challenging um, times and historical events as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that's the beauty for me. That's what I love the most is bringing that to life. Yeah, yeah, and bringing, breathing, you know, life into these characters that, that may have only been, you know, part of a census data mm. at this yeah. time. You know, I think that's really special. I do want to ask you, you know, set in 1819, we said Northern England, um, you know, I'm assuming when you do historical fiction there's a fair bit of research involved. What surprised you about that time or that place throughout your research? Yeah. Well, I was really most surprised at how much change occurred in that late Victorian period that was almost really on the cusp of of the modern age with the 20th century. So there was lots of advances in medicine and technology, um, engineering, um, um, science and uh, social reforms and political reforms as well. So there was an awful lot of change at that time. Um, but besides all of that, I mean, I, I learned about the vaccinations, which was really interesting for smallpox at the mm. time, and that was a mandatory program um, in Britain. And and there was an anti-vaccination um, program, anti-vaccination movement as well. <laughs> Things um, never change. <laughs> no, and that, that was really interesting actually to see that there was mm. quite a bit of parallel with today as well. Yeah, wow. Especially coming up after COVID, um, you could really look back and see back then when they had their various epidemics with smallpox and typhoid and cholera and, in mm. fact, even the Russian flu, um, which they people I wrote read articles where people are actually drawing parallels between that Russian flu, which is the first global pandemic in 1889, um, to COVID-19 today. So some really interesting, quite fascinating stuff there mm. as well. And what stands out to me is it's so fascinating that there's this thread in humanity that remains kind of the same. You know, you're talking about technological advances, social progress, um, a time of great change, and yet there's the part of humanity that just remains the same, isn't there, when you're talking about those parallels? Yeah, yeah. Human nature is essentially the same, and I think that's what you discover when you write historical fiction. And even when you go back into looking into history that you know, 
history repeats itself basically it goes around yeah, and around right. human nature is the same um no matter that's, what that's why the classics stand up you know like yeah. your austins and your pose and your yeah shakespeare exactly. and whatever they stand up because we still find something relevant within that humanness no matter how much time that's has passed right. yeah it's fascinating yeah. Yeah. i do want to talk about women's i know you do talk about um and explore women and their struggles and their challenges and their strength in your novels and what were the main differences you found between 1890, I mean, besides the right to vote, um, mm-hmm. and the progress that we've made for women today? So what did you find were the great differences or surprises or parallels? Mm-hmm. I, I guess um, the, the greatest, um, the great, well, we've got the vote today. I guess yes. that's the biggest uh, improvement that we have today. But, look, I was really surprised at the parallels, um, the, the gender pay gap. I mean, mm. women really were fighting to be paid better in their in their work in the 1890s as well through mm. the trade union movement um, particularly. Um, that really, uh, really exploded in the 1890s and women were involved in that process as well. So there's things like that. Um, there's also a, a right to a woman's body. Um, in the 1890s, they were talking about birth control. Um, and, and certainly today, we, there, there is a discussion still that's continuing on about a right to a woman's body. Um, I found some really interesting stuff in the 1890s, which was quite surprising. Uh, women, particularly poor women um, and some middle-class women too, had very little choices when it came to pregnancy. Um, especially when they were outside of marriage. They could either marry the father or often just end up in a workhouse. They um, they had no independent means, so they couldn't support themselves, so there was no place for them to go. Um, and then I discovered that there was quite a big thing at the time called infanticide, so women actually killing their babies. Wow. Because they had no other, no other place to go. Mm. Uh, so they had to continue with their work. And, and then they hid their pregnancies and um, and then gave birth and often, you know, smothered their children and, and oh, hid wow. the bodies. Mm. Yeah, pretty, pretty horrific brutal. sort of stuff. Yeah. Really brutal. So I guess, you know, at least these days, um, most women aren't reduced to those sorts of circumstances. The social um, reforms certainly have increased in the last sort of 130 years um, and there's a lot more support for women out there. But, but you know, essentially... those sort of dark uh, areas still exist in society. Mm, Yeah, they do. And as you were listing them, you know, women's bodies and autonomy over that and the pay gap, and I'm thinking, hmm, okay, we still need to address these things a hundred and so many years later. So, yeah, 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 progress is is slow, but progress is, you know, also quick in some ways as well. It's, it's, It's really interesting. I find that actually very fascinating um, when you read historical fiction because I think you still can find yourself or your situation no matter how long ago the story's been written. Yep, I tend to agree with you. <laughs> now, when something takes a bit of research, I'm always interested in how you tackle the writing process. So are you someone who does all the research and you have all that bank of knowledge and then you write or do you get impatient and write and then go, oh, I don't know about this, I better go research or is it a bit more sort of fluid than that? Yeah, it's a bit more fluid for me. It always starts with a family member and trying to learn as much as I can about them and that's through family stories or uh, documents, memorabilia that the family might have 
and then getting on and doing some more family research, say, through the Ancestry website, um, where they've got such great source of documents available there. Um, and then I have a bit of a, an idea of what the story might be like, and then I will go away and do my research. Um, and, and, you know, that's that's all sorts of things, reading first-hand accounts, historians' points of view. Um, what I did this time a lot more of too was I went on and uh, looked at the online museums um, for fashion and how people lived um, and the historical societies as well who write about what life would have been like, say, in Durham in the 1890s and this fantastic bank of photos that they had as well. So that, that was pretty fabulous and, and that was mainly because um, it was COVID, no one could travel, <laughs> couldn't go to England. Um, I was lucky I could speak to my um, my father-in-law's cousin in the UK who could give me a bit of information, but essentially the research was done online. Um, and I did a fair bit of research there to get a bit of an understanding of what the Victorian world would have looked like um, and, and sort of the big moments in history at the time before I actually sat down and then constructed my story. Um, and then as I, as I wrote, of course, there were always things that I didn't know about still or something would come up as I was writing and I'd go, oh, don't know about that. I need to go back and research. <laughs> yeah. And, and really fascinatingly too, um, often I'd research something and I'd find something unexpected and go, oh, I've got to pop that in the story and that's got to go in there. And that would sort of take perhaps the story in a slightly different direction too. Mm, I find that really fascinating. And you mentioned about fashion. And I mm. think that fashion, you know, for some people just maybe it's a bit undervalued, but I actually think that fashion is very indicative of where we are socially, particularly when it comes to women. You know, the first time women were allowed to wear bathers in public or pants or the corsets or mini skirts. Yes. And I think fashion is a real um sort of representative of where women have been through history and how repressed they are versus how much freedom they have depending on the clothes that they a were permitted to wear or wore anyway in a kind of rebellion i find that absolutely fascinating yeah and, and i agree with you there I, I found the same thing so in the sort of mid 1800s the women still had the bustle and the big hoop skirts and you know the corsets and all of that as well we get to the 1890s and fashion has changed quite a bit. The skirts have become A-line so that women could move easier in their work. Um, women would wear what was called shirtwaists, uh, which is like a modern-day blouse really and similar to the men's shirts. Mm -hmm. um, they still wore their corsets, unfortunately. <laughs> and that, the 1890s um, made, the, made the waist even narrower. Oof. Yeah, quite surprisingly. <laughs> Um, so there, there was that as well. But but um, I guess the other thing was that there was um, uh, a, a movement that, um, I've forgotten the word now, but they um, allowed um, reform in clothing as well, so freedom mm. in your clothing. Yeah. Um, and so women were starting to wear like pantaloons and knickerbockers, <laughs> bicycles. The, shirts were, the skirts were coming up from the ground above the ankle. Mm, freedom. <laughs> yeah, leisure activities. Um, so there, there were those sorts of advances as well and it was quite scandalous for, to see a woman in pantaloons. Um, there, were, there was a, a movement also to reduce, reduce the amount of boning in, in, the, in the corsets and to give women freedom to breathe. There was an argument that women weren't able to um, have proper health with the tight corsets. Imagine, imagine letting women breathe. 
Imagine yeah. allowing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I even sort of researched a bit more about maternity um, mm. courses as well. They were actually able to, you know, undo the flap to be able to breastfeed okay. their child. Um, so there, there were some improvements and some um, changes through the 1890s with this with uh, clothing reform mm. as well. So um, it showed that progress was was yeah. And as much as I love reading and watching about a Jane Austen ball, I could not deal with those corsets. I can barely deal with today's bras, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> it would have been horrendous. <laughs> but even today we talk about school uniforms and there's been research that, you know, making or enforcing girls to wear dresses in the playground when they're not allowed to wear pants or shorts promotes a more passive way of behaving in the playground and so even today that's still happening which which fascinates me like people think they're just clothes but they're not you know there's so much more to them that you know really reflects where we're at as a society so i just find that really fascinating but even in in france during the war there was a time where there was this kind of rebellion where they'd wear the colors of the flag Mm. you know as a kind of patriotic statement but without getting themselves into trouble so i just think um yeah i just think it's so fascinating these type of things and um, and what we learn from history and what we can take from it and you know it's very interesting what we'd be wearing in you know 20 years and what will what that will say about (laughs) say about our society as well and who we are exactly Now, I do want to ask you, I asked this question of everybody who comes on to the podcast and, you know, you've written a couple of books now and they all, you know, deal with family and historical fiction and, you know, women who may have been forgotten without you giving them a voice. So why do you write? Why do I write? (laughs) Just Um, an easy question. That's a really good question. (laughs) (laughs) I've always loved writing and I think um, why I write, why right now is because I want to um, give these ancestors a voice, mm. these people in the past a voice. I want to be able to share those stories with with readers. Um, maybe I suppose what where it started when I wrote The Girl from Munich, my first book, it was based on my German grandmother's stories um, and they were really when she was a, a youth in Germany during World War II. So it, her her stories were told through the eyes of a of a German girl under Hitler's regime. Um, so it was a very different perspective. Um, and my stories have always followed that that kind of line, I suppose, looking through the eyes of someone else and showing a very different perspective mm. to what people might otherwise, you know, just accept or have seen as a as a general rule. Um, and, and I love being able to show some different perspectives um, about like World War II, um, what it was like for the German people, what it might have been like for the Italians. And I've recently read a book too by Ali Parker about her Japanese grandmother in post-World War II um, Japan. And so all of these fragments of, um, I suppose, perception and understanding um, lead to a more holistic understanding of, of that event about World War II and about human nature. And so that I guess that's that's why I write. Um, mm. I want to share those sort of things that I have been blessed to have growing up um, and with other people, yeah. 
And important stories they are. I always think that whenever I, you know, delve into historical fiction, I'm always fascinated by something or I learn something new or I just yeah. fall in love with these characters because you know that, you know, even though they might be fictionalised or embellished, they, they existed in the world and, you know, you're giving them a voice I think is really special. So thank you so much for talking about all of that and um, A Woman of Courage, really enjoyable historical fiction novel that I think is really important giving those um, otherwise forgotten women a voice. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Danny, for having me. It was great.